What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode number 74. This week, we got to talk to Luke Oswald from Publicly Challenged Podcast. We had a really good conversation with him about his podcast and what he does, a lot of public ground-centered stuff. Again, this week, we've had kind of a string of public land guys, but I think it's good even for the private landowners. We can learn from those guys and what they're doing. We actually have talked about that with some of them, how it translates over to private property as well. And we got to talk about some different stuff with Luke as far as the foraging goes, mushroom hunting and things of that nature, just utilizing uh, everything nature has to offer to you. He was really a wealth of knowledge on that stuff, and we got to talk to him about that. And we heard one of the wildest hog hunting stories I think I have ever heard, and it's probably one of the craziest stories that's been told on the podcast. So you want to stick around for that for sure. Uh, Luke Oswald, number 74. Before we get into that, though, don't forget our, about our sponsors here on the Ridge Hunter Outdoors podcast. If you guys listen to this podcast, you know that Grandpa Ray Outdoors specializes in providing the best nutrition for white-tailed deer on your property, starting with the soil. They offer a full line of high-quality food plot seed and plant foods. Grandpa Ray Outdoors was started in 2015, but John has been in the seed nutrition business since 1991. With over 14 food plot blends to choose from, you're not going to have any trouble finding what you're looking for. They've got fall and spring blends, corn and beans, switchgrass, liquid fertilizer, soil test kits, you name it, they pretty much got it. They're not just about selling their products, though. They're going to answer any questions you have about what blends would be best for your specific property. That way you can achieve the best results possible. They're not going to treat you like they would everybody else in the country. If you're in Michigan, they're not going to tell you the same thing to plant as they would somebody in Georgia. And based on your soil types and all that good stuff, too. They don't believe in a cookie-cutter approach to wildlife nutrition. Like I said, they'll treat you and your situation individually. They're not all about the fancy labels and packages either. They're about good quality seed and taking care of their clients. We've used their seed blends on client properties in the past, and the results have been as good as advertised. We've also, of course, used them on our own properties for our own food plots. And you guys can even check out the vlogs that we do on YouTube and see how that stuff has turned out. That's why we partnered with them on the podcast in the first place, and that's why we're going to continue to use their seed and partner with them here on the podcast. Go check them out at GrandpaRayOutdoors.com and use discount code RHOPODCAST, that's all lowercase, no space, to get 5% off your entire order there. Also, don't forget about Rodney Hawkins. If you guys are looking for a piece of ground to manage and hunt or you got some ground to sell, Rodney's the guy to talk to. He grew up hunting and fishing in southern Illinois, and he's now putting that love for the outdoors into selling recreational properties as a land specialist with Midwest Farm and Land. Midwest Farm and Land isn't your average real estate company. Last year, they sold over $85 million worth of ground just in one year alone. With agents like Rodney all over Illinois, they're really a local company with a national reach. For more info, you can contact him directly at 618-925-3153, and he'll get you taken care of. He's also recently started a new company called RG Outdoors. He's currently got hard and soft-sided blinds and blind chairs all from Radix Blinds. He's also got a natural scent elimin- all-natural scent elimination product called Camo Dust. He's got Tacticam trail cameras now, and he has burn a self-defense weapons. If you're looking, if you're interested in finding anything more about all those things that he has to offer, you can check out their Facebook page, RG Outdoors. Email them at rgoutdoors at yahoo.com, or again, just call Rodney directly at 618-925-3153. Also, don't forget about our website, ridgehunteroutdoors.com. If you find something you like on there, use the discount code RHOPOD, that's all caps, and you'll get 10% off anything on the website, everything in your order. You can follow us on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review there. 
Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Like and comment on that. We're back to doing videos for the Full Draw Fridays, and we're going to start putting up some more content as the spring planting season moves along as well, so you're not going to want to miss that. Subscribe to the channel. Hit the notification bell. And then follow us and leave us a review on Spotify as well. All that stuff's going to help us help us out here and show your support, and that way we can keep doing this for you guys. So all that said, Let's get into the conversation with Luke of Publicly Challenged. This is the Rich Hunter Outdoors podcast. Hey everybody, you got Canyon and Nate here. We're talking with Luke Oswald from the Publicly Challenged podcast. Luke, how's it going, man? Good, how are you? We're doing all right. Uh, getting rolling into turkey season here. We're getting ready to do some of that. Um, you going to do any of that this spring? Nope, no turkey hunting for me. The county I applied for, I did not get a tag for. So turkey hunting is out for me, but morels and uh, other spring uh spring ephemerals and things will be on the table for sure and i want to talk about that some because i remember that from talking to you down there at the or up there at the deer and beer fest um you do a lot of foraging stuff as well and have a lot of guys on your podcast talking about that right i do i do indeed uh that's definitely become a uh, major part of uh my outdoor experience Mm -hmm. so did you get into how did you kind of get into the outdoors in general? Like who introduced you to it and was it that kind of stuff or was it more like the deer hunting or squirrel hunting or, or what was it? Uh, so to be honest, it's kind of funny because I was just looking the other day and my kids brought home from my parents' house and it was a picture and it was me and my dad and before Instagram and uh, Facebook and all that kind of stuff, there's the brag board at your local bait shop. Mm-hmm. And, uh, my dad was home that day and I got picked up from school cause I was sick and my dad took me fishing when I was supposed to be going home and sick uh-huh. and, as, uh, as any good dad should. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. It's either that or he was just kind of selfish and I really was sick and uh, he just wanted to go <laughs> <he> fishing <laughs> and it was, and it was trout opener and he wanted to go fishing no matter what. So, uh, needless to say, uh, we, we caught like five trout that day and I only caught one or two of them, but one of them was like a three and a half pound trout. So, uh, you know, did pretty good mm-hmm. and, uh, made the board. So there you go. <laughs> that, that was kind of the, some of the earlier experiences. I've got a lot of stories about that kind of stuff, but then, uh, soon after when I was able to handle a firearm, my dad took me and, uh, we started doing small game and stuff. I never really got into big game with my dad, but later on, uh, it turned into deer hunting, and at the time, my parents, they, they bought uh, some property in a subdivision, but it was uh, large size lots, mm-hmm. and there was no other houses built out there. And my dad uh, talked to the owner of the subdivision that was selling all the lots, and I got permission to hunt 85 acres of uh, prime prime ground at the time i didn't know it i didn't know what i had and mm-hmm. uh, really didn't know how to hunt but talked to a few buddies dads and that's kind of how it all got started borrowed a few tree stands and, and uh after shooting my bow season was ready to go and it took me three years before i killed one but once i did it was hard earned and well worth it oh yeah it makes it a, uh, a lot more rewarding when you finally do get one when did you start uh bow hunting do you remember like around what age you were at I believe it was right around 15 or 16. Yeah. So yeah. were you going by yourself quite a bit at that point? 
Uh, yeah, quite a bit. I think at 15, my buddy already had his driver's license. He was a year older than me. Mm-hmm. And uh, he he would drive us out there, and we'd go hunting in the mornings. I think we even used to get up, and before the time change, you could get in, you know, three hours or two and a half hours of hunting before school started. So, oh, yeah. 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 Are we talking uh, – I forgot to ask this. Are we talking Illinois here? I couldn't remember yep. where you were at. Yep, okay. it's Illinois. I'm up, uh, you know, the north – Central, north, northern Illinois. Okay, that's what I was thinking. North Central, yep. I couldn't completely remember. Um, So when did you start hunting public ground? Because obviously that's kind of what you're about now with the podcast, publicly challenged. So, yeah, definitely. Um, And that's kind of how the name came about because I I realized soon after I started hunting public that I was truly publicly challenged. (laughs) Yeah, uh, I think most of us are. (laughs) Um, you know, it, it was kind of weird. Uh, I hunted a little bit on and off, even when I had private ground to hunt, but slowly as time went on and I got older, public, public ground was more appealing and there was less private ground that I could hunt anymore. Mm -hmm. And it got to the point to where I hardly had any. And, uh, I I really wanted to keep hunting. So I said, all right, you know, I'm going to commit to, uh, hunting public ground and, uh, started out and it was, it was pretty rough. Talked to a few people and, and uh, learned a little bit and kind of learned some things on my own and eventually kind of started to put some of the pieces of the puzzle together. And then that's when it really, really became appealing. And now I'm addicted. I could care less for the most part about private ground anymore and just Mm -hmm. on public because it's such a, a exciting and interesting experience. Every time you go out and especially discovering a new piece of property. And that's the thing. It's, infinite amount of new pieces of property that i can always discover so yeah and we're actually that makes it fun we're on a string of like three guys in a row or three out of the last four guests we've had on our public land guys so one of them is steve shirk who does he actually does a public land guiding service out in pennsylvania uh the guy we talked to on last week's episode will will have been last week's episode austin stone they do a ton of public land hunting um and then obviously you do in public land and all you guys kind of have similar thoughts about it, like just the excitement of of the challenge of public ground and finding new new land and doing the scouting, and you just never really know what's out there uh, until you go out there and you find them, whether that be putting up cameras or, or just seeing them on the hoof for the first time. But there's definitely an excitement about it that sometimes you don't get on private ground that you know really well. Right. I, and what's cool, though, I, I, I truly appreciate the guys that put in the work and and maintain property because one it uh it definitely contributes to the the public land as well and without private landholders maintaining property and uh growing nice whitetails there wouldn't be as many nice whitetails on public right yeah and, for sure. uh, so a lot of times i tend to look for property or places that are well maintained by landowners that that are trying to raise a good herd mm-hmm. and then hunt that public yeah well <laughs> they might not like that but, <laughs> right uh, <laughs> well that's similar to having good neighbors even on private ground like if you've got a, a block of guys that all are on kind of on the same page with managing deer the right way you're going to have more better deer so if you can find that public land spot that's around guys that are trying to harvest more mature deer you're going to have more mature deer to harvest yeah yeah and that happens the other thing i tend to look for is uh uh, good sanctuary, something that maybe all the properties around them don't tend to have, and then tends to be on public ground mm-hmm. or heavy doe bedding areas. And then 
you can go in there during the rut and then all the deer that are normally on these food plots aren't necessarily there anymore and right. in, uh, some of the public. Um, so I've talked about the last few guys with this, like I will hunt public ground occasionally and mostly it is because of you don't really know what's out there. And I know Nate was kind of in a similar situation last year where he knew what was on his private ground and of the deer that you had, Nate, you were you were pretty sure you didn't really want to shoot any of them being four-and-a-half-year-old deer. It was an instance where I've done it before, and you could have went and hunted public ground, and then at least you don't know what's out there, and it keeps you interested and keeps you engaged. Yeah, like yeah. Uh, uh, last year, um, of course, we did have a baby uh, three months, four months before <laughs> season started, so uh, that really put the brakes on a lot of my season. But if I was hunting just as hard as I would have been the previous years, I would have been very bored right there at home because – uh, I got a lot of cameras up and they're not, they weren't showing me anything that I was wanting to, to kill. Um, so I would have been looking for something else last year for sure. If I was really hunting hard. Yeah. One of the things I always tell my friends though, is you gotta, you gotta breed when the deer breed. That's, that's <laughs> oh, <man>. the biggest. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I, I do have the urge in November. I get up in the morning. I rub my head on the, uh, on the banister of the stairs, you know. Uh, yeah, I go down there, I paw in the carpet. Yeah, You don't piss on the floor, do you? <laughs> she gets mad, real mad. When the bucks are rotten is when you need to be rotten. Yeah. Because, yeah he, uh, he gets the stinking real bad around November. And, yep. and fishing season, you can work around babies. Yeah, yeah for yep. sure. Uh, so what did those early days of looking like of hunting public ground look like? I know you said it was kind of rough at times, but obviously there was a learning curve to it. What did that look like for you? Oh man, there's so much to, to unpack there, but, uh, I'd have to say the biggest challenge was other people. Mm-hmm. It was easy to find sign, right? You know, you, everybody knows kind of what they're looking for, whether it be transitions or actual heavy sign from deer, but to one hone in on a big buck, if you could, and then figure out how to get on that buck without having your hunt spoiled by somebody else trying to hunt it. Mm-hmm. And that happened to me a lot that first season. In fact, there was a nice deer, and for public land, you know, 130-inch whitetail in oh, a yeah. congested area is a nice deer. Yeah, and, sure. uh, and and I had one to where I thought for sure I was going to wait. I was going to wait until it was cooler, and I was going to get him. And I should have hunted him within the first week and killed him if I could have. Right. And ever since then, you know, I waited, waited, waited. Once I finally started going out, temps were dropping a little bit there was guys in that little timber and it was timber right off the parking lot yeah. and it was ag surrounded by ag. And he'd just go out of the, his bedding area and go right into that ag and eat. And, and I didn't hunt it. And when I did finally hunt it, there was about 10 other guys in that little pocket of timber trying yeah. to hunt that same deer. Right. And that deer had already been missed three times and had <laughs> probably went into another County. Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> He's probably long gone at that point, tired of getting shot at. (laughs) Yeah, so, I mean, learning curve there, I mean, the biggest thing was if you find something, hunt it, don't wait. Right. And then the other thing was definitely uh, just trying to figure out how to get away from those other people. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the biggest things that I found is if you can find something with water access, Mm -hmm. that has become my best friend. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of guys aren't probably doing that or – putting in the extra work or even have the ability to do that i wouldn't think yeah a lot of them park they park in the parking lots and if water access is uh it's a legal thing to do because i know in illinois 
a lot of them say you have to park within a designated area right and you can't access it from any other way but if it allows for water access that is one of the biggest uh helping hands that i've ever found because then you can kind of pinpoint where you're going to go in and then you don't even blow out an area with scent mm-hmm. uh because you you can pick your entrance and exit route so that that really helps yeah um and it's kind of going back to what you're saying just a second ago i guess a deer that that you know is there that has less people hunting it maybe would be a better target, even if it's not quite the quality of deer than one you know about that everybody else knows about. So maybe like your, your target becomes a different deer. You're looking for a buck that is not only quality to shoot, but also that not as many people know about or are hunting, I guess. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, this year I've had, man, he might even been over like 130 inches, but I, I I just plumb missed him. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but at the same time in that area, it was a, perfect little chunk of sanctuary and they were getting close to lockdown rut Mm -hmm. still pushing each other around quite a bit and uh i had a little a little spike buck in front of me that he was in front of me so long i had to resist the urge to draw back (laughs) on him because i knew because i knew that that other buck was in the area Uh and pushing pushing the dough around but uh, you know, so to me, it's not necessarily whether how big they are or not. I just like killing them and eating them. Right. But uh, but but I tend to try and push my skills to see how big of a deer I can actually get on and right. put on the ground. And the longer they stand there <laughs> like that, it's, it is harder to resist that it's, urge. It's oh, yeah. tempting. I had I had that spike buck and a doe in front of me, uh-huh. and she was huffing and puffing, and I knew that buck was coming. Yeah. And uh, and sure enough, he showed up, but. He, he, he was like, the problem is, is I shoot really heavy arrows. So, um, I, I need to change my setup a little bit this year over the summer mm-hmm. and, and turn that around a little bit because my arrows are so heavy. They've got a really big arc. Right. And a single pin sight, it makes it kind of difficult. And I, I ranged it and he was like 30, 36 yards or something. And I put my pin at 40 mm-hmm. and it, it went, uh, it lobbed right over his back. <laughs> yeah. That's hard to do, shoot over a deer at 36 yards. Yeah, it went <laughs> right over his back. So, yeah. so uh, needless to say, you know, I'm not perfect. And, and uh, uh, yeah, I made none some of us screw are, ups, for sure. But that one, uh, he was he was a super nice buck. And I, I've got him on camera and uh, I videotaped him with my phone after, after I missed him. Yeah. And he never gave me another opportunity, but I still saw him four more times that day running wow. around checking scrapes. I just couldn't get down and try and get on him in time. But. Right, right. So that's interesting there. What kind of uh, a setup are you running as far as your uh, archery equipment goes? And then what changes are you thinking about making? So I'm going with lighter arrows. Right now I've got like a 14.5% FOC with a 618 grain arrow, mm-hmm. total weight. Um, 125 grain broadheads up front with I think like a 75 insert. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the FOC is fine, but just the total arrow weight, right. um, super, super heavy. Yeah. And and I want something that's a little bit flatter. Obviously. Right. Yeah, there's to a balance. A, to where a thirty five and a forty yard shot, you're only talking an inch off, not yeah, not right. Six inches, but exactly um, yeah. not a miss. Not a miss. <laughs> yeah. 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 So that's something I'm gonna look into. I think I'm going to be from all the calculations that everybody I've talked to and and the people over it used to be Vector Arrows, and now they're Method Archery. Mm-hmm. Uh, really good guys. Met them at ATA, and uh, 
one of them lives up in Wisconsin, another one's down in uh, Kentucky. And uh, just great guys, and I've talked to both of them extensively on the phone about different stuff. And uh, through computer programs and, and uh, experience, it seems like about 500 for a 65-pound bow, shooting, I'm shooting a Matthews Verdicts, mm-hmm. um, that right around there at 65 pounds, I should be really, really good and fairly flat with uh, about 505 grains, 510 grains. Mm-hmm. And it's still enough to where you're not going to lose any any uh, penetration or anything like that. Right. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good place to be. I think I'm shooting right at 70 pounds, and mine is I'm somewhere around the 525 grain total setup, and I've been pretty happy with that as far as like what yeah. you're talking about. So I'm not compromising anything on kinetic energy, I don't feel like, and I can still reach out there and shoot one at 35 yards if I need to, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, realistically, at, at 65 pounds, as long as you have enough FOC, I think you could get away with like 460, 440 grains. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, every, everything that I've looked at. And, and so, I mean, I don't think I'm going to go that light, but then again, who knows, I might set up another bow for going out West. That's a little bit flatter mm-hmm. so I could reach out and poke something at 65 if yeah. I needed to. Yeah. I actually have, well, when I went out West to hunt mule deer, I did that. I went to quite a bit, considerably lighter weight arrow just like you're saying where i could shoot 60 yards if i needed to it was just a lot flatter yeah yeah um kind of back to the public ground stuff you're talking about you know everybody kind of knows what they're seeing as far as sign and stuff is there to you is there a difference in the kind of sign you're looking for versus just tracks and scrapes and rubs um like what are you looking for out there that's going to get you excited about sitting a certain spot Oh, uh, well, it, it's got to be sign that it has actual activity. Uh, I've come to learn that there's some pieces that, that have sign all over the place, mm-hmm. but it's probably just a place where they pass through at night. Right. Uh, there, there's some state parks and things that I've hunt, hunted that have bike trails and running trails and stuff that go right through them. And there's deer sign 10 yards off that trail. And it's heavy, big, thick, thick, you know, scrapes and rubs everywhere to where it's a nice rub line. Right. But those rub lines don't get frequented during the day. Now, you might get lucky, uh, you know, like a week before rut in an all-day sit and see one or two. But if it's Mm -hmm. not the one you're looking for, now you just wasted uh, all that time. But so I look for stuff that actually has sign and activity in it to to where I know I can actually get on it and hunt it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, are there overlooked areas in your mind that a lot of guys won't even try? Like uh, somewhere, say you're looking on an aerial map and it just looks like there shouldn't be anything uh, that you've found actually might be a pretty good spot? Or like is there a specific scenario where that's happened to you? Or is it most of the time like you look at the aerial and you see a spot of interest and that's it, it pretty much is what it looks like? So a lot of times I'll I'll look on – uh, I won't just look on aerial maps that are like Onyx or or base map or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, I use base map because I like the wind the wind stuff. But um, what what happens is you look at it on there, and then I'll have to look on Google Maps and start sliding that slider and see what's historically been planted there. Because a lot of times you got these big open fields on public that are 
public ground that you can hunt, but they only have like a small little sliver of timber. Right. And you think that's not worth hunting. But if that's got other timber somewhere across the street or something, and for some reason it's a pheasant field that they plant to mm-hmm. where they knock down corn, uh, that's a gold mine. Yeah, you know where the deer are <laughs> going to be. Early season, you know, and a lot of them, the thing is, is a lot of guys don't hunt them because you end up to where it is soon as pheasant season starts, November, whatever it is, you can no longer hunt that mm-hmm. during the day. Or if you do, you got to wear orange. And, and there's so many guys, pheasant hunters going through there, it's not worth it anyway because they're pushing all the deer out. Right. But if you can hunt that early season before that and the corn's still in those fields, those deer are hitting that like crazy. That's a gold mine. I mean, it, it's almost like hunting over bait, but it's really cool. Right. <laughs> <laughs> how much does that go into play normally like uh, getting out there in the early season how much success have you had with that because from my experience very limited experience albeit with public ground is around where we're at a lot of guys don't start hunting real heavy until maybe that last week of october first week of november so how much are you put how much stock are you putting into getting out there just before kind of the crowds or where you're at is it pretty much just just pressure all year long it depends. It depends. Some some of the places are pressured all year long. But what I've come to realize, if people are willing to travel an hour from Chicago and come down and hunt where I want to hunt, mm-hmm. I'm just going to go an hour somewhere else. Right. And it turns out most of those places are pretty good. And during football season, there's nobody out there on a Sunday. I can tell you that. <laughs> right. Yeah, that makes sense. That's something I wouldn't even have thought of. The only, the only time people are out there is when they hear that cold front's coming. Mm-hmm. Everybody, you know, sees the barometric shift and hears cold front on the weather, and they're telling their wife, I'm going out tomorrow morning, hell or high water. Right. And that's what they do. But uh, any other time, especially hot weather, uh-huh. there, there's nobody out there. But those deer are still traveling. They still got to eat. They still got to get water. Right. And they're still looking, and they're cruising those scrape lines, you know, and they're getting ready, mm-hmm. you know. And they're hitting hitting the rubs and all that other stuff too. Right. So you just you really gotta you just try and find that sign and the transitions to where they're gonna get into a feeding area after they hit them or something. And that's that's a real good spot to be. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um now with that too, like uh on the warmer weather stuff, you know, a lot of times on private ground, if it's not that day where the the barometric pressure is rising and the cold front's moving through, we won't necessarily hunt our best spots because we don't want to add that pressure and we don't have to worry about someone else going in there messing it up. So you're on public ground. You're just kind of like, that's almost an opportunity for you to get out there when there's no other competition, I guess. Absolutely. (laughs) That's yeah. That's, I mean, it's prime time up until about the rut and then you start getting people. Mm -hmm. Um, Or, no, go ahead. Yeah, when you, I mean, when you know you're going to have a lot of competition. The other thing is, is if you plan on doing an all day sit, because I've done that, it, or, or as long as it's productive, or get down and move to a different spot, whatever. But plan on being out there all day, right? Because most of those guys that hear cold front, they're going to be out for the first two hours in the morning. Mm-hmm. And because then, then they're going to look and go, well, I've been sitting out here for three and a half hours already, mm-hmm. and they're going to leave. Right. I can't tell you how many times I heard cold front and you had a nice storm or whatever it was. And by the time I get down to go to the parking lot to move and go to a different spot, there's no cars there. And there's probably 10 cars there when I, you know, when I was walking into the woods. Right. So that's, that's a big one. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Uh, Luke, you said uh, water access is preferred. 
uh, like you're looking for that if you can find it. Uh, what kind of stand setup are you using? Climber or hang and hunt, or does it depend where you're actually going? It depends. So I used to always use a climber tree stand, and that was suitable for most water access because you've got uh, kind of uh, old growth timber typically along riverbeds and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but I can tell you that there's been quite a few spots, and lately with all of the uh, dead ash trees. Oh, man. I don't yeah. much prefer that anymore. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and uh, there's been a few opportunities that I felt I couldn't get in an adequate spot. So now I'm primarily a saddle. Oh, man. Okay. Uh, so you are, you're one of the hardcore saddle guys now. Yeah, and it's not necessarily for weight. It's never been a weight thing for me. Yeah. But uh, I can't do an all-day sit in, in like a lone wolf hand climber. It's just yeah. not comfortable enough. And the summit's too big and bulky to be thrown in a canoe and trying to get in. Yeah. So, so uh, it's uh, it's how uh, how minimal you can be getting in there then, uh, since you're using the saddle. Yeah, I, I, it's an all day sit thing too for me. So a saddle, I found one that has a higher back support, mm-hmm. and uh, some guys like the two piece. I can't I can't get into that and do that, but I use a two bore saddle. And that saddle has a real high back that you can, you can slide up and it gives you that lower back support without like a back band or anything. Yeah. And it's got like seven different adjustment points. So I can kind of, if you have a tension spot or anything like that, you can work the kinks out and relieve it. Mm-hmm. And it's super comfortable and it's really lightweight. So I, I put that thing on at the base of the tree and I, I climb right up. Yeah. Do you still have, when we were at the show, um, you had some of your clips there. Are you still doing that? Like for the, for the saddle setup or whatever and your climbing sticks and all that? Yep, I'm still producing the saddle clips and the platform clips and uh, currently still using carbon fiber climbing sticks, the Timber Ninjas, but mm-hmm. uh, I think Latitude Outdoors has got some new ones and I think I'm probably going to switch over to them yeah. this season, this coming season and play with those a little bit because they're just neat. I like new things that right. are cool. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about um, the product that you have, that those clips and stuff that you're talking about. So I, I got a lot of guys that use parachute cord or bungees or all different kinds of ways to clip their stuff to their saddle. And I don't like things hanging off my saddle. Mm-hmm. I use a full frame pack. And typically most of the time, if I can't drag that deer, if it's more than a hundred yards, I don't want to drag that deer. Right. <clears throat> Especially if you know, you're two miles deep and you still got to get to your canoe afterwards and then, <laughs> yeah. and then haul it out. Right. So uh, typically I quarter them up like the Western guys do. And mm-hmm. I'll put them in my pack and pack them out. And, uh, so I already have a full frame pack. And when I climbed the tree, I didn't want anything hanging off my saddle. It's just uncomfortable. It's bulky mm-hmm. and stuff tends to clang around. So I wanted to come up with a way to where I could put them on my pack and just reach back and then put them on the tree and just have them slide right off. So mm-hmm. I developed a clip that goes on my climbing stick and it positively secures it on, say, your kidney belt or any Molly webbing that you have. And uh, it, it's worked out pretty good. Yeah, it seemed like a really slick setup, um, the way you, you were demonstrating it up there at the show last year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll be at the show again this year. Yeah, we're going to be up there, too, uh, uh, by the, I don't know, we'll be, like, in the second row. I can't remember exactly what booth it's in, but I thought it was a pretty good show last year, really. And I yeah, know they're, yeah, they're going to make some improvements to it, to it I think. Yeah. I'll also be there uh, presenting and talking about foraging oh, as cool. well. So, cool. yeah. That's a good segue into that, too, because I was, like I said earlier, I wanted to ask you about that. Um, 
Now, when you say foraging, like everybody might not know, why don't you just kind of explain what you're talking about? Like, obviously, kind of the mushroom hunting and all that. Um, I guess is it just like you're looking for natural food sources, kind of thing? I like yeah, just explain that. In so, general. I mean, foraging is the active pursuit of wild foods. So, technically, when you're hunting, you're foraging. But people typically like to call hunting hunting and whatever. To mm-hmm. me, it's all encompassing, though. It's become uh, just a way of my outdoor lifestyle now. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, so talking about plants and mushrooms that are wild edibles that you can find and, and, uh, and eat. So I tend to pick a lot of that stuff lately. Mm-hmm. And now what's fun is, you know, when you're a hunter, <clears throat> and I've heard it explained to me this way, that hunters are actually some of the fastest learners as far as foragers are. Mm-hmm because they spend so much time out there and they're familiar with all these plants, but they just don't have a name or an association with them yet. Right. They haven't developed that relationship. They might have their own name for them. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Right. Like I never knew what a spice bush was Mm -hmm. until somebody actually told me that was a spice bush, but I'd seen it and I'd picked off the twigs before and kind of smelled on them and like, touched them on my tongue and stuff, but never really did any further than that. Cause I didn't know what the heck it was. Right. <laughs> right. But, but then once I knew, yeah, now I, I, now I pick a little twig and start nibbling on it and chew on it and the berries, they just smell amazing. Mm-hmm. I actually uh, was tracking a deer one time and I just happened to kind of nervously cause I couldn't find any blood. And I was just, I tend to <clears throat> touch and feel things in my environment. Right. And uh, so I happened to actually just touch those berries and I picked them and was squeezing them in my fingers and just noticed this amazing kind of clovey cinnamon like smell to it. Uh And I was like, wow, that smells amazing. I didn't even know what this was at the time. Right. And then later realized it was spice bush. (laughs) So, (laughs) which is great for seasonings and flavoring things. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. So just things like that. And, um, I mean, there's all kinds of other stuff where you notice that deer are browsing on something, but you don't know what it is. And they call it false nettles, which I have a real problem with people. Uh, like they call Solomon seal and false Solomon seal or one smooth Solomon seal. And that's the actual Solomon seal. Another one's called false Solomon seal, but both of them produce an edible berry. One tastes a little bit better than the other one, but mm-hmm. why is one false and one's not, you know? Right. So <laughs> those, those aren't the best names for it. And so, now I'm kind of in the process of actually learning the Latin names for them, which mm-hmm. is actually the you know genus and species and stuff. And you know all about that kind of stuff anyway, because you know right. you're into plants and right. different different type of plants, but still in the same same uh, oh yeah realm for sure. Yep. So what is your? Do you have a target species for foraging? What would be like the favorite thing you're out there looking for? <laughs> no, it's everything. And that's what's great about it is there's uh, every every month, every season has a change and has something coming up. So currently everybody's looking forward to morel mushrooms, right? And mm-hmm. hunting morels. For sure. But <laughs> I'm looking forward to ramps. Okay. And so basically it's in the allium family and it's a uh, bulb that's kind of like a garlicky, garlicky onion mm-hmm. and it produces these leaves that are wonderfully tasteful as well. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to those and making soups and compound butter with them. And I'm going to tell you right now, a venison backstrap with some ramp compound butter on top after you bring it off and you're letting it rest yeah and putting a big old pad of that on top of it and then serving it up is delicious yeah you're kind of making me hungry 
So, yeah. yep, there's that. And uh, I got a buddy down in Tennessee that he currently just uh, sent me a picture, and it was uh, he made a turkey, pounded out turkey breast and fried it up and made uh, like a morel gravy with morel and ramps, and that, that looked pretty delicious too. <laughs> yeah, I was I was getting ready to say that like adds kind of almost another element to it, like. Especially this time of year with guys turkey hunting. If you go turkey mm-hmm. hunting and you kill a turkey, and then you can add some morels into the mix, and like what you're talking about with the ramps and all that, um, yeah, you can just kind of oh, add yeah. another a whole another element to eating it, and they'll just kind of living off the land for lack of a better term. Oh yeah, I mean it just in the, every season. So right now we're just coming out of sapping season. So um, mm-hmm. everybody thinks maple trees when you tap trees but you can actually tap silver maples and they have a mm-hmm. fairly high sugar content as well and you can tap black walnuts as well yep, yep. and i'm going to tell you right now black walnut sap is amazing my father-in-law you, does a little bit of that or has done a little bit of that in the past actually oh, oh yeah and yeah. i i actually prefer the black walnut syrup over maple syrup because maple's just got that mapley taste that everybody right. knows it it's distinct right mm-hmm. but i'm kind of more of a caramel guy myself and that black walnut syrup tastes has a very caramely taste to it. Mm-hmm. There's a guy that we go to church with that just goes crazy uh, about black walnut syrup. Um, he taps a oh. bunch, <laughs> taps a bunch of maple trees. Uh, he uh, he does a lot of his own syrup that way, but he uh, he does just a little bit of black walnut just for himself. You can't get any of that from him. Uh, but he, he said he said that it takes a lot more uh, black walnut sap, raw sap, uh, to make syrup. Is that right? As opposed to maple. So, so the actual, I think we just figured it out. And I, I believe I just talked about it on a podcast of mine recently. We were talking, we were on a hawk hunt and we were actually talking about syrup, which is kind of crazy, but, uh, we, uh, we were talking about it and I believe it's 1% sugar in the, in the maple, in the black walnut sap. And it's 3% sugar in the silver maple sap and 5% in an actual, uh, sugar maple. Ah, Okay. Yeah. So so yeah. Instead, of, it's it'd probably take a hundred gallons instead of eighty to yeah. to make to make one gallon of syrup. Yeah. He uh, he has given me uh, some of his you know regular maple syrup and it's good. Uh, of course, he does it all himself. Uh, but then the black walnut, he just talks about it. Uh, he will not let any of that uh, away from his possession. It's delicious. I actually made a beautiful mistake with mine this year. I heard it and and I asked my wife. I said, "What's that noise?" And I forgot. I Sap takes so long to boil down that sometimes if you, you, you're not supposed to walk away. You're supposed to just sit there and watch it. Mm-hmm. But I ended up walking away, and I'm like, what's that noise? And didn't realize, well, it was actually sugaring. It was turning to sugar. Oh, and uh, so I hurried up and turned off the heat and just started stirring and stirring and stirring. And, and the moisture content completely left it, and I was left with nothing but these granules. So now I don't know what I'm going to use it for entirely, but oh, I've already sprinkled it on a few things, but I'm trying say, to have, think of a dish that, yeah. I was going to say, have I you tasted it? That. Oh, it's, it's wonderful. It's amazing. Uh, yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> uh, sounds like a pretty beneficial accident there. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I know a lot of guys that make uh, maple sugar, but I've never made black walnut sugar before and it's delicious. Well, it sounds like it'd be pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. So like I said, though, I mean, we're coming out of sapping season right now. That's, coming to an end here in the north it's still going on but um and that's just the start so now you've got all your spring ephemerals that are coming up so your your uh virginia bluebells and and i'm looking forward this year because you know on instagram you see everybody posting about us now i got to go out and discover it myself because i've never noticed dame's rocket before Mm -hmm. but you could take the dame's rocket 
and you soak it in hot water, I believe, and like let it steep. And then you take lemonade and you pour the Dame's Rocket liquid in the lemonade and it turns it into this wonderful, just like pink lemonade that has the Dame's Rocket flavor to it. So no kidding. Um, kind of looking forward to that um, as well as the ramps and some other stuff. Going to try and make some salads this year out of some new things. Then, of course, milkweed shoots are one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Really? So that's, yes. Yeah. Huh. I would have never thought about that. So the one thing, uh, just because it's edible doesn't mean it's edible without being cooked. <laughs> right. Uh, so that's that's something to keep in mind. Uh, they do have a cardiac glycoside in in them. That's that white milky sap that you see come yep. out of them. Yeah. That, uh, that's actually what makes the monarch butterfly toxic to the birds, and that's why the birds don't eat it, huh. is because of that cardiac glycoside that comes out of the sap of the milkweed. Um, so you take it and you boil it, but it only needs one boil. If you read on the internet in a lot of places, it says like 10 changes of water, seven changes of water. But I've got a few friends that have thoroughly convinced me that, uh, just have about three times water per volume of, uh, milkweed shoots that you're actually boiling and just put them in and boil them for a couple minutes and take them out and enjoy them. Really, and that's the way to do absolutely that. Wonderful. Uh, let your friends try it first. <laughs> well, <yeah. laughs> if something goes wrong, <laughs> they are definitely more experienced than I am. Yeah. But the one thing you have to look out for is uh, and and is uh, you don't want dog bane, you know. And if you look at the difference, there's a difference. There's a pith in one versus a hollow shoot. So I mean, there's there's definite differences between the two, but you need to kind of be aware of that and educate yourself. Don't just take my word for it on a podcast. <laughs> look it up yourself. Right. And know the identifying features, but one has like a reddish hint to it too. So yeah, this sounds, a little bit easier. obviously there's tons of stuff out there. This is like a thing that it sounds like you could get just about as deep into it as you want to. Oh, absolutely. There, there's people that I know that are exploring things right now that there's no written evidence of, but it's in the same genus or same family. And it's relatively the same species that you find in another country that they commonly eat. Mm-hmm. So they're at the point where it's like, well, if it's edible over there, why isn't it edible over here? And why do we have no documentation of it? So they're actually documenting it oh, and cool. experimenting with it and eating it. So, well, yeah. Hopefully hopefully we don't lose any of them. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. I mean, they, they, they're almost 100% certain that, that it's not toxic or harmful, but right. you have to go through the process of actually proving it and documenting <laughs> right. it. And, and so, so one of the guys was telling me that he eats ridiculous amounts of something, you know, raw and cooked mm-hmm. to the point where nobody would actually even eat that amount. Anyway, right. Right. You know, and so, and he's fine. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Like there was no documentation or anything on false nettle and, right. and, and false nettle is delicious. So yeah. You know, why not eat it? Yeah. It's like you kind of like, you never know until you try it kind of thing. As long as you, Absolutely. like you said, they're yeah. almost a hundred percent sure it's safe. They're, Kind of. Yeah, and I mean, if it's documented that they're eating it in other countries, but for yeah. some reason they're not eating it. Now, the only thing that that gets into a different territory is mushrooms. Yeah. Because there's a lot of lookalike mushrooms in other countries that, yeah. uh, that, that, and so people, a lot of people from Asia uh, tend to eat, I don't know, I can't, it slips me what the actual name of the mushroom is over there, but there's a very similar one over here that's a destroying angel, mm-hmm. and it looks very similar to an edible mushroom in, in Asia. And then if they come over here and they pick it and they eat it, they end up dying. Yeah, right. And that's actually most of the cases of destroying angel that are deaths are people that in another country normally pick it. Right. 
I guess that would be worst yeah. case scenario. Best case scenario, you eat a mushroom that you don't know what it is, and you end up on Mars drinking elephant piss with Joe Rogan or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> uh, well, maybe, yeah. Uh, there's there's a few of those, but most of them have to actually be processed. Right, right. So. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. I was talking yeah. about that guy uh, that makes syrup. Uh, he also likes mushrooms quite a bit. Um, he likes morels, but he says that the chanterelles, I believe they come up in the summer, uh, I think, uh, like in your yard. Uh, he said that yeah. he much prefers those. Uh, are you familiar with any of those? Yeah, chanterelles are, are amazing. So, um, But they have to be picked at the right time as well, correct? Yeah, so okay. around here, up by me, now southern Illinois is typically a little bit earlier because uh, most of it varies upon soil temps and you know, how much rain you get and stuff like that, it can delay it a little bit. But, mm-hmm. yeah, they normally, I think around here, about June into July. Yeah, so. yeah. I know he uh, he likes morels, but what really gets him excited are the chanterelles. I've heard him say that before. Yeah, and I haven't gotten too far into those. Um, picked a few and ate them, but, yeah, this year I'm hoping to try and get out. I know of a few spots that are really good that uh, I just need to actually make it up there and get to them. It's a little bit of a cruise. So, Speaking of the stuff that grows in your yard, are you a fried dandelion guy? I don't fry them, but I'll eat them raw, really? mostly for a dandelion challenge. But they're not bad. So the common American diet doesn't have very many bitters in it. Everything's loaded with sugar. Mm-hmm. Anything, anything you pick up off the shelf in the grocery store, unless it's just an actual vegetable, right. is uh, pretty much – fortified with sugar yeah and, it, especially uh, so, if it comes so every, from a package it's probably not good for you no yeah and it's so they're all sweet mm-hmm. and uh our taste has been manipulated to the point to where we don't even like anything bitter anymore which is actually most bitters are actually really good for you right um so uh yeah i tend to try and develop to where i like it now it's not the greatest thing in the world but there's a little dandelion challenge that me and some other people have been doing uh on Instagram back and forth lately and TikTok. And uh, so, yeah, this year I'm looking forward to eating dandelions and I'm going to eat as many as I can. Yeah. Uh, just to win. I want, I want to claim that title. <laughs> there you go. I got plenty of them. But medicinally, in my yeah, medicinally, <laughs> I, uh, I, I tend to use them a lot too. I, I use them to make teas and stuff and they're actually great for cleansing the liver and the kidneys. Really? They do a really, really fantastic job of that. So obviously there's a ton of medicinal uses for stuff that, uh, is growing naturally. Uh, aside from that, do you do quite a bit of that or, or get into any any of that? I It's ever-evolving for me, mm-hmm. but yes. Um, I've So the year before last year, I spent a lot of time just trying to learn what all of these different things are. And I would try and learn the plant through all stages of life. That way I could easily identify it and understand that I'm correctly identifying it. Mm-hmm. And once I did that, the next year I was confident enough to go out and start picking all these things like ground ivy and uh, purple dead nettle and all these other things that are um, in the mint family. And the mint family is awesome because uh, most of it's edible, almost all of it's edible. Mm -hmm. Some of them taste better than others, but they all have fairly, all of them have a medicinal purpose as well. And uh, it turns out that the ground ivy, when you dry it and steep it in tea, uh, tends to be a really good heavy metal cleanser hmm. for, but, but 
also beware where you pick it from because if it's absorbing a lot of heavy metals from the ground because it's once again an absorber of those things Mm -hmm. well now you're getting those heavy metals that it absorbed right but if it's in a clean area and you're picking it and then you use that you can actually pull heavy metals and toxins out of your body so there's, there's all kinds of things uh that that you can do and i'm just now scratching the surface on that other day uh, the kids and I were out fishing for you know, the trout season opened up mm-hmm. and there happened to be a cottonwood tree there. And so I was looking at the cottonwood tree and ended up before we left, I picked a couple handfuls of cottonwood buds. And so that sap that you see, that real sticky resinous stuff that comes off, mm-hmm. um, has a chemical compound that's very similar to like aspirin. And okay. uh, you can steep that in uh, like a grain alcohol and actually extract that and then use it as a fever reducer and an inflammation and pain uh, reliever as well. Hmm. That's pretty interesting. So I just threw that in the jar the other day. So Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Um, Kind of back to, like, the the regular stuff. And obviously around here, like, morels are really popular, and you see guys, especially this time of year, starting to pick a bunch of them. Are there areas that you specifically go to look for that type of stuff, or is it just kind of – you're out there looking, you happen across them. Do they grow randomly? Um, is there is there a way you, you can kind of look for those in specific yeah. areas? So mushrooms in general, most of them has have a mycorrhizal relationship with some type of tree, or they prefer some type of tree. Okay. Um, so morels typically, uh, you can find them in pines. You mm-hmm. can find them near apple trees. But almost all those trees need to be dead. Also, uh, elm trees and tulip poplars are very good trees to look for. Mm-hmm. My biggest advice is look up, not down. Right. Look up at all the trees and at the canopy because they don't have any leaves yet. They're just starting to get buds. And all the ones that are dead and don't have buds or leaves on them, mm-hmm. I'd head right to those trees first and then look at the ground. Okay. And then the other thing, once you find them and you see them there, just stop and pause or get down on your knees. And even sometimes I turn my head sideways and start looking mm-hmm. across the ground right. and you'll be surprised because where there is one, there are many. Right. And you will be surprised how many people that are these speed foragers that, you know, don't hunt or anything and they can't slow down. Mm-hmm. And that's the biggest thing. Slow down in nature. Nature doesn't care about what your time clock looks like. Right. And, <laughs> and yep. you'd be surprised if you just sit there long enough, how many of them you'll see there. Yeah. And that makes sense. Cause if one's growing there, why wouldn't there be more? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, but now go ahead. No, I was just going to say, but definitely, uh, apple trees are, tend to be overlooked, especially if somebody has got like an old apple orchard in their backyard and it's starting to die off. Mm-hmm. That's a good place. And if it's in a sunny spot to where it's kind of grassy or something like that, mm-hmm. that tends to be a good spot where you can find your first morels. Yeah. Now that obviously you talked a lot about this on your podcast as well and the, and the hunting and stuff like that. I was actually listening to one today that uh, you did with Zach Farrenbaugh. Where, when did you start uh, the publicly challenged podcast and what kind of led you to doing that? And then like not only doing it for the hunting, but also for the foraging or which kind of came first? Uh, I'd say the hunting probably, well, it was all at the same time, the whole inception of it. It it kind of started, I was always interested by all these things mm-hmm. and uh, just kind of thought to myself, well, I don't just want to be a better hunter. I want to be a better outdoorsman all around and have 
all these skills encompassing and bring them into one. Right. But uh, I, I was listening to a lot of hunting podcasts at the time, and I thought to myself, well, these guys are asking questions, but they're not always the questions I want to ask. Mm-hmm. And then I thought to myself, well, why can't I just ask some guys that? <laughs> so I did. Right. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. What, what? And that's kind of how it went to, you know, I mean, I wanted to educate myself, but I figured if I'm going to educate myself, I want to try and educate everybody else as well. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. What year was that? Do you remember like the year you started? I believe it was like late, very late 2018. Okay. Maybe 19. Okay. So you're so, on yeah. year four or five now? Maybe it might have been later than that. It might have been 2019. It, it was it was pre-COVID. Mm-hmm. It was right before COVID hit. So right, <laughs> somewhere in there. Yeah. So yeah. what did the the beginnings of the publicly challenged podcast look like? Um, what were you doing? Like, were you doing an episode a week? Were you trying to get guys on immediately? How did you start it, and how did it kind of evolve? I to started where it is out now? and tried to. I started out and I tried to get a bank of podcasts. Mm-hmm. I wanted somebody once told me, they said, get six or seven episodes. So you're not stressed out. So you're not trying to just keep cramming them all the time. Right. And, uh, I think I had about three episodes and then the guy, one of the guys that I interviewed kept pressuring me and said, just launch it. When are you going to release it? When are you going to release it? It's not even going to be relevant. What we were talking about, hurry up and release it. Right. And then finally I said, okay, I'll do it. And I did it. And then by doing that, there was just no looking back at that point. I was mm-hmm. committed. Right. So. <laughs> yeah, at that point, you just kind of got to keep plugging away. and Yeah, keep plugging away. And that's what I've been doing ever since. And for the most part, uh, one episode a week. And uh, I think I'm about 150-ish, 52-ish episodes deep. Yeah, yeah. So not to make any of your guests upset, but who would be, I don't <laughs> want to say your favorite, but some of the most interesting people you've talked to. Oh man, I don't know. It it all depends on what you're into, right? Right. Uh, and, and but I can tell you a few that that are my buddies that uh, definitely definitely have been a conversation to not forget. Mm-hmm. But also, it tends to be a lot of a lot of people end up listening to him. But uh, Mark Livesey with the Treeline Academy. Okay. Uh, the stuff he's doing, and now he's with Go Hunt doing stuff, and. Mm-hmm. And all kinds of stuff, but uh, his his e scouting stuff that he does is absolutely phenomenal. And I can't say I'd be as successful or even come close to learning all the stuff I've learned without without him and and his program that he's developed because that is an absolutely phenomenal program. And I use it for whitetails. Yeah, all the stuff I've learned with Google Earth and everything else that I've learned, I've learned it all from him. Yeah. and I've taken that and I've applied it to all aspects. Now I'll even look, try and look for certain trees on Google, Mm -hmm. Google earth to try and go mushroom hunting. Yeah. So (laughs) I guess it works, right? Yeah, it it does. It comes pretty close. I mean, once you figure out oak trees and the fact that you can slide that slider on there Mm -hmm. and look and see, and oak trees are still holding their leaves in November and nobody else has leaves on the trees, you can go, okay, Oh, that's a big stand of oaks. I'm going to go there in September and uh, October and go pick a bunch of head of the woods mushrooms. Yeah. So <laughs> yep. yeah, it tends to work pretty good, but he, he, uh, he, he can talk and he's always got something uh, fairly interesting to say. Mm-hmm. And then uh, 
of course, my buddy Clay Bowers, he's a forager that every time, even though I talk to him all the time, every time I have him on podcasts, he always tends to come up with something that blows my mind. Right. So, right. Yeah. It's good to have those kind of people and you can always learn from them too. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I like to try and learn as much as I possibly can in this life and hopefully pass it on to everybody. Uh, one of the things my wife picks on me the most for is the fact that if I can go out and buy something for $50, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to spend more money and learn how to do it myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, uh, that's like, uh, the American way these days, right? Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah I'm not paying that. I'm going to do it myself. And then you end up spending yeah. more time so, and I mean, money it's on it. Me and... <laughs> down a, a lot of different journeys and paths, but uh, oh, yeah. everywhere from making my own knives to, uh, ended up learning leather working because I needed to make, you know, sheaths for all the knives. And then once I did that, I was like, well, I got a couple pistols. Why don't I make holsters? There you go. I got into that and started doing Western holsters. And yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, it, it goes in all kinds of different directions, but yeah. All right. Tell me about these knives. How did you make them? I have made uh, a couple of knives. Um, I've done I've, a few. I've, <laughs> so I've done a few. My dad, he's the one who put that bug in, in my ear a long time ago. Yeah. And uh, I was a little kid and he had a, a coil spring from, uh, a vehicle of some sorts and yep. we took an oxyacetylene torch and heated it up, straightened it out, pounded it, shaped it, and then surface ground it and and then uh, took it and actually heated it up and then and uh, that was the first knife and we made a Tonto and I was probably about twelve. And All Blade right. magazine was always sitting around in, in the house and uh, yeah. so he definitely inspired me as far as that. But then later on in life I uh, first started out buying blanks and uh, just working on the blanks and doing mm-hmm. those. And then after the blanks, I went a little bit further, and I had a buddy who had an antique store. And uh, he gave me a forge and, <laughs> and everything to go along with it. And there you go. We went, went and got a bunch of coal, and then I started forging railroad spikes, and that turned into files and whatever yeah. metal I could get my hands on. So Yes. Yeah. I've got a buddy that's got a propane forge, uh, and he would make knives or uh, or you know decorative things. Um, uh, he would sell them some, uh, but the propane forge, we made several knives in there, uh, reading on how to heat treat properly and then what kind of steel you need to be using, you know, so it will, uh, so it will be tough, you know, uh, but yep, we, we made absolutely. a few knives. I do have one that I'm pretty proud of. Uh, and then he, uh, I did not do a good job on my sheath. Uh, but I do have a sheath for it. Um, but yeah, that was, well, that just that was takes a, time and practice and how yes. much money you want to dump into it. What I've come to find, but then, you know, I, I, you go and you buy these tools and they're junk tools and you start looking at it and going, well, crap, I got an antler. I could take a Dremel tool and make a better bone slicker than that. So, right. yep. you, you know, then you end up doing that after you spent 10 bucks on a tool. But uh, yep. That's kind of the journey that went there. And then, you know, and then I started shooting traditional a little bit, and my buddy got me into that. And I did that for about a year or two. So how long um, before you're making your own bow? Uh, you know, I never went down that road yet. Yeah. I thought about it multiple times. There was a guy not too far from me that used to teach people how to do it. But mm-hmm. Wow. I just haven't had time yet, yeah. Right. Yeah, that's it's interesting. And once, like you said, you start getting into doing that stuff, then – it opens up other doors where you're like, well, I could do that. And then that turns into something else. And before you know it, you've got like 15 <laughs> projects going on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and for it, sure. Yeah. A lot of times, uh, things like this on this path feel like they take you back in time, 
you know, to where absolutely uh, uh, to where people this is this is what you had to do. You couldn't mm-hmm. go and buy the things uh, like we can today. Yeah, I mean, and so me and a couple forager buddies just went uh, down to Texas and we went on a hog hunt. And so I brought my bow and brought a crossbow for them because they were uh, two of them were fresh hunters and never hunted before, and I figured that was a good experience to get them started on that. Mm-hmm target rich environment and uh so we did that and i ended up picking up one of those Lockmaster spears and uh brought that down there and i practiced with it before i went down and uh ended up having an opportunity and speared a boar and no you kidding. want to talk nice. about taking yourself back in time uh, <laughs> i that boar charged me and i speared it man well, and that was yeah let's that, back up that, and tell that story yeah <laughs> <laughs> Well, so we'd been pushing this boar, uh, uh, boar for a while and trying to stock up on a bunch of them. And, mm-hmm. um, some other guys, we were driving them to, to people and giving them their opportunity to shoot them kind of right. like a deer drive. Right. You know? And, uh, so we were kind of BSing actually, and that hog had been pushed hard and it was tired of getting pushed and we were BSing a little bit, not paying attention. And the, my friend's brother already had a hog down on the ground and he ends up going, Hey, that one pushing, it's coming for us. We're like, what? He goes, stay frosty. And we turn around and there it is. So we start pushing it again Uh and try and corner it. And so he's coming from one direction and I'm coming from the other direction and we're like pushing it. And uh, it got tired of it. It got tired of getting pushed and trying us cornering it. And, uh, it looked at him, looked at me, and just came right for me. And uh, <laughs> it decided you were the better option, I guess. Yeah. So, so I, I was gonna throw the spear, and I'd already thrown twice. At in in a running target, throwing the spear is difficult. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so I, I was like, oh crap, man, this one's coming for me. So I actually jabbed at it and did like a sidestep mm-hmm. and jabbed at it. And when I did that, the spear hit the ground, and this hog bumped the spear. And it lost its footing for just one second. And I took that one second and just, and I speared it right through <laughs> it. Skewered him to the ground. <laughs> and I pinned it into the ground. <laughs> and that SOB worked its way up, up the spear to, to the handle and uh, tried coming at me. And uh, my buddy, my buddy uh, had a European boar spear. And I looked at him, I was like, get it. <laughs> and it was fresh for him just hunting alone he was still trying to process his first kill in his mind and get over that and i'm like stab it and he's looking and he's not sure where to do it and he had it lined up and it was right on the lungs and i go there now <laughs> and oh. he did and you just heard that thing deflate and it was over with but that i mean and that was all within a matter of seconds that's wild and it was over but I mean, those were some terrifying seconds for a little bit there because it still wanted to tear me apart. Oh yeah, um, how big but, was uh, this pig? It was uh, probably about seventy, seventy-five pounds. Big enough. Big enough. <laughs> yeah, still an eater size, you know. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know if I would have done that. Uh, and talking to the guy that was the ranch manager, he was telling me he's like, "Yeah, I've seen people get their arm broke before." <laughs> spear and a pig because they hold on to that spear and the pig starts thrashing and just rips their arm along with it and breaks their elbow yeah that's crazy (laughs) i guess that's one way to get in touch with your primal side definitely absolutely Uh, and i will say that the 
the ethics of spearing may actually may actually have more of an argument than than traditional archery equipment. Right. Right. <laughs> well, hey, I mean, you got to be close enough. You should hit them good, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I had a couple other opportunities that uh, that were close stalks and mm-hmm. and throwing within a few feet, and uh, it was an amazing experience. And and, and after it happened, I kept talking to my buddies, and I'm like, man, I cannot believe how this has gone down and it's happened. Mm-hmm. But not only that, shooting with a bow versus doing that, and it was an archery, and it was only blades and spears and, and archery equipment only. Mm-hmm. And and doing that, it felt like the most fair chance for that animal to ever have. Right. It It was different. And to know that, you know, thousands of years before me, the same type of thing went down. Yeah. And me connecting with that was pretty cool. Yep. Yep. They got, I mean, they have huge issues with the hogs down there, obviously. Was it just, were you guys in them like the whole time you were down there? I mean, I would say there's probably places you could go and and not have any trouble finding them for sure. Yeah. So this was an actual hunting ranch. I want to come clean and say that. Um, But it was hogs from the landscape. Mm-hmm. in that local area that were trapped. Mm-hmm. And so the money we put in there was, you know, putting money in two people's pocket down there. Right. In the economy and getting rid of a problem at the same time. It was a low fence and there was definitely some some holes and culverts oh, yeah. and things. Oh, yeah. that hogs definitely get in and out a lot. And right. I asked the guy, I said, how many hogs do you lose? And he goes, oh, we don't lose them. If there's any hogs in here, the other hogs come in too. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they just And it was just out. a low fence. I mean, it was it was something that you wouldn't have a problem running and jumping over, but, right. uh, but yeah. So, I mean, it was technically a fenced area, um, but, uh, but it's low fence and, and I saw some white tails in there jumping over the fence too, mm-hmm. going in and out. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, they definitely release them in there to make it a target rich environment. Yeah. That would be, what kind of led you guys to wanting to do that? Just a new experience or did you know somebody down there? I knew some people that had done it in the past and I, I've, I've bore hunted before. Um, once, once on private ground, that was, you know, just a regular piece of property that somebody had down in Texas. And then another time down in Missouri, that was a high fence operation Mm -hmm. too. And, uh, that didn't thrill me and doing it with the guns, but the whole concept with the bow and really just trying to get out, you know, and we did it in February and down there in Texas, it was 60 degrees in February, and up here yeah. it wasn't. <laughs> so yeah. it was kind of a no-brainer to, to <laughs> yeah. be able to get out and hunt something and uh, and get some new hunters out there and get some experience on them to where now, you know, you you put planted that seed and you're just going to watch it grow. And mm-hmm. that's really what I, I wanted. And then at the same time, we got some wonderful meat. I've made a few dishes already that are just absolutely amazing with it. That's what I was going to ask. You hear a lot of guys talk about them and – some guys will say the boars aren't worth eating. Uh, did you have that experience or was it just like either way? I mean, so the first boar I ever shot, which was like eight, nah, more than that, 10 years ago now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I shot that one and it was probably close to 200 pounds. Wow. And I butchered it and processed it myself and took it and just tried to make your traditional meat cuts with it. Right. And it did not work. It was tough. It was very musky and gamey, and it just didn't work. Now, if I was smart, and at the time I wasn't, but I would have ground it up, and my buddy took it to a butcher shop and had them grind it up and turn it into breakfast sausage. Right. 
and it was absolutely amazing. Mm -hmm. And I was like, man, I wish I would have done that with mine. Right. I already cooked cuts and tried pawning it off on other people, <laughs> doing everything <laughs> yeah. you do, and it just wasn't that good. But yeah. uh, <laughs> then this last one, you know, doing it again, it, it I was like, okay, I'm going to do something with these. These smaller sized hogs would be better anyway. Um, and one of them still had some kind of musk to it, but um, I took, I already took the pork, the loins, and um, I put them in a brine and and did them for 72 hours in the brine, rinsed them, put them on the smoker, smoked them, took them off, let them fully rest. There's a guy, uh, Wild Game Gourmet, that I followed his recipe, and it turned out amazing. Mm -hmm. And I made uh, wild boar Canadian bacon. Okay. And and that brine with a little curing salt, so it stays nice and kind of pink, mm -hmm. and uh, it's absolutely amazing. Yeah. I'm so glad I did that. It made me want to go sh <laughs> kill two, two or three more of them. Right, that's right. how good it was. Um, so, so how many that. how many pounds did you guys end up with from that excursion? You know, I didn't even weigh it. Yeah. I've got I've got uh, I'd say I've got probably about twenty pounds of stuff already cut and trimmed, ready for for making sausage yeah um so i'm the next thing i'm gonna do is i'm gonna make some uh, chorizo mm -hmm. and make some breakfast tacos so that'll be go. the next on the list yeah yeah so the the guys that were new to hunting that you took down there are they like all in now because i would think there would be no better baptism into hunting than <laughs> stabbing a hog with a spear <laughs> <laughs> yeah so he actually shot another one and what's funny is it was uh they moved pretty quick and so it was actually stopped and it was a good it where he was shooting was a great heart shot mm -hmm. and it turned and faced him by the time he pulled that trigger. And when he did, he actually shot it through the forehead <laughs> and it, it dropped instantly. And I thought it was just a headshot. It turns out that that crossbow bolt actually went and hit the heart at the same time. Wow. I mean, it was, it, it was an amazing shot. And I was like, Holy cow instantly it dropped. I mean, their legs went stiff and it just fell and that was it. It was done. And, and uh, so, I mean, that was his, his third hog that he killed in that trip. And he yeah. was like, Oh wow, this is a lot. And at first he was still kind of didn't, didn't know, had mixed feelings, thought it was, you know, fun hunting and the stalking aspect of it and all that kind of stuff was neat. And he felt like there was a connection there, you know, because mm -hmm. He's, he's a real big-time forager, so he's always out there in the environment, but you're never truly active. You know, you're, you're not a participant. You're just kind of like a, a casual participant and not really an active participant until you actually hunt. And now he's completed mm -hmm. that full circle mm -hmm. to where now it's ever-encompassing, and he's, he's, he loves it. He's like, man, I can't wait. Like, are we going to go deer hunting? <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so now, now he's got that, and, but it wasn't until he got home. Mm -hmm. And he had that meat that he truly had that full feeling wash over him. And he's like, man, I, I've made a few things. He made some miso soup and, and used uh, or some pho or something, some type of Asian dish. Mm -hmm. But he made a bone broth and, and used that and some of the cuts of meat. And he's like, it wasn't until I started eating it that I realized I had my hand in every part of that. Right. That I'd never had that before. Yep. And, and it was uh, transformational. For him, and he was truly grateful and just thankful for the whole experience. Yeah, there is something to be said for that too, especially I would think new guys that do it, and you know even guys that 
enjoy going to the store and getting cuts of meat and eating it like that. Once you do get out there and you put the work in and you stalk an animal and or whatever, wait for it to come by, you put a plan together, you kill the animal, and then, like you said, have a hand in every process, actually physically process the meat, whatever it is, and then cook it and eat it, uh, there's definitely another element that that adds to it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's just, to me, that's as addictive as the hunting part of it. A lot of times is just kind of knowing that, and it goes somewhat to what you're talking about with like the knives and stuff and, and the spear hunting. It's like a lot of people wonder if they could have done it in the past, like the way those people had to, or if they could still do it, if they had to live off the land and it like, it's almost like some kind of assurance that, you know, if I had to do this, I have the know-how, the knowledge to do it. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things I'm kind of looking into right now is like uh, salt curing meat, but the traditional way without actual uh, like preservatives or curing salt or anything to where they, right. I mean, for the longest time, people just use regular salt. Mm-hmm. I mean, at some point they added nitrates because they realized it could help and most people got botulism, but <laughs> Right. <laughs> nonetheless, <laughs> nonetheless, they were just rubbing salt on it, curing uh-huh. it, cracking that salt off and rubbing pepper on it and hanging it. Right. I mean, one of my favorite movies as a kid and still to this day, I like watching it with my kids is old yeller. Uh-huh. But what, what did they do? They rubbed the salt on it, put the pepper on it and they hung the deer on the porch. Yep. And uh, so I'm kind of trying to get back to that kind of stuff to really get get into the nitty gritty of the, the whole curing and stuff. Although the kid did hang it wrong from everything I'm understanding. <laughs> yeah. You're actually supposed, you're actually supposed to have it to where the hoof is down because it's a natural drain. Right. Uh, the way God designed it and that animal's hoof is on the ground is actually the way you want to hang that as well. And it Makes sense. Better that way. Makes sense. But that's just stuff you learn. Yeah. I actually saw a video recently of a guy who had done exactly what you're talking about in a video. Was that the Six Ranch Outfitters or oh, something like that? Or, I can't remember who uh, posted it. I know the guy had, had done that, and then the video was of him cutting a little sliver out of it and eating it, kind of like his first oh, taste test. Oh, it looked test amazing. Yeah. 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 And I thought, yeah. That's it's probably the same one, yeah. Yeah, because uh, my dad actually does, he has a deer processing shop, and they do cured and smoked tenderloin, and, like, that is some of my favorite stuff. And I think it would be, and obviously it's different, but kind of similar to that and without the smoke flavor, but just like the cured meat thing to me is really, mm-hmm. really interesting. I think that would be a lot of fun to try. Yeah. I mean, just long-term being able to, in the summertime, walk up to something that's been hanging in your basement or whatever mm-hmm. and just slice off a chunk with that knife you made, you know? <laughs> or if you really want to freak the neighbors out, don't even slice off a chunk. Just look them in the eye and grab a bite out of that thing. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. I think you got to cut the rind off. I'm not sure on that. Well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but either way, yeah, that stuff appeals to me. Yeah, for sure. And that's, and just like you were talking about there, related to that, just kind of a more natural way of doing it. And then it adds some more, uh, I guess, an interest level to it and it's just another way you can do it to keep things fresh and new and trying different things absolutely i mean once again i mean it's it comes full circle right you you want that all-encompassing well what better way to actually cure your meat and be able to bring it into the next season and try and pair it with all the things that are growing Mm -hmm. so that's that's what i'm into these days (laughs) yeah um you talked about doing some hunting out west have you been out there um at all yet or is that something you're looking into doing i've, I've been out there a couple times uh 
unfortunately without success but uh hopefully that changes here the last time elk hunt i had planned i ended up getting covid and the 10 days i was going to be elk hunting i was i was at home of course quarantined so uh yeah but uh plan on getting out there again uh more so than even elk i mean elk definitely appeals to me and i i Mm -hmm. do want to put a big old bugling bull on the ground or even a cow really because I'm not that picky. Right. Uh, you know, it, the horns don't matter as much as the experience in the meat. But yeah, uh, it'd be nice to have some hanging on my wall. But right. Uh, just like anybody would want. But, uh, right. you know, to me, what really appeals to me right now is a spring bear hunt. Yeah. And uh, that that's something that's going to happen next year for sure. Yeah. it's It's got to happen. So yeah. are you looking at, <laughs> so, are there opportunities to do that? public uh like kind of on your own or is that something you have oh, to do outfitted or, okay uh, idaho idaho you can buy i think it's one bear tag and somehow you can get an extra bear tag colorado if you buy an elk tag and that's a fall bear hunt but you buy an elk tag they practically push a bear tag on you yeah um and and a lot of states are like that now i mean they're just the bear population is somewhat out of control and they want to give the hunters an opportunity before the state has to intervene right um so, so yeah, they're fairly cheap too. I mean, if you're looking for a DIY hunt mm-hmm. to go out West, one of the cheapest things you could do is bear hunt. Yeah. And, and to be honest, a spring bear probably doesn't taste as good as a fall bear in the berries, mm-hmm. but, uh, and bear meat's pretty good. It's, it's definitely underrated. And, and the thing I could say is recently got into rendering tallow and fats and, mm-hmm. And making stuff out of that, whether it's chapstick or soap or lotions or any of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's some of the best materials you could use for those products. Yeah. And uh, what better way to do that than get some bear grease and cook with it, too. There you go. Yeah, I've actually heard that about bear, too, that a lot of guys like eating the bear. And that's something you, you don't really think of as something no, that would be appetizing. No. But, yeah, I've, I've definitely yeah. heard some guys talk about it. Nate, actually, you did some bear hunting, uh, well, probably, what, 10, 15 years ago now? Yeah. Up in Canada? Um, uh, gosh, 12 years ago, probably right around 12 years ago, I got to go on video, uh, free for me, just, uh, just throwing in a little bit for fuel and then tipping the cook, uh, at the lodge, you know, um, I figured I could do that. Uh, yeah. so anyway, I was like 18 or 19 minimal, uh, expense for me. I got to go up there and see all that video that for a few guys. Uh, and that was a lot of fun. It was incredible. Yeah, no, that's definitely, uh, what's nice is Canada's borders are finally open again to where yeah. everybody can go up and bear hunt. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's definitely uh, an opportunity. But what's what I think is crazy is there's so many opportunities here in the United States that people don't pursue. Right. Uh, and, and not all of them are spring bear hunts. I, I, typically, it's only out west that there's spring bear hunts. But, I mean, you got Arkansas, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got all over on the East Coast from Pennsylvania and even, I think, you can get bear tags in Georgia and Florida and, uh, you know, all over, really, Tennessee, Kentucky. Yeah. There, there's a lot of bear opportunities that people really don't realize that might be pretty close to you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's enough, seems like there's enough of a population throughout the East and then the West and kind of even pushing towards the Midwest that, yeah, you, it's not, you really wouldn't have to go that far. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I mean, honestly, I'm hoping for a reintroduction in Illinois at some point. Yeah. Hey, so. last year, last year there was one. I don't know. They said it was a young male. Uh, you remember um, the the mm-hmm. CPOs were kind of tracking him. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were afraid that some of uh, the people down in this part of the world would 
uh, take matters into their own surely hands not and go on their own bear hunt <laughs> surely not us rednecks down here in southern illinois <laughs> uh, unsanctioned bear hunt i forget where they said he came from though but they said he came from like hundreds of miles away and yeah uh, somewhere well they'll see in texas texas is the way their laws are structured for hunting if it's a non-native species it's fair game. Yeah, open season. <laughs> yeah. So, so if you got a deer tag in your pocket and you happen to see an elk, well, that's not native, so you can go ahead and drop it. <laughs> there you go. I didn't even have to pay for that one. So, <laughs> yeah, that, that's interesting because actually, uh, one of the guys we've had on the podcast, Dusty, uh, Dusty Wood, uh, it's been I don't know how many years ago now, but there was an elk that had came from somewhere, some reserve or a farm like that, that had got out and it was in our area of the world. And he talked to a game warden about it because apparently he had seen it at some point. And it was kind of like one of those, well, we'll get back to you. And then, because they were trying to figure out where it came from and all this. And eventually when they got back to him, they were like, hey, yeah, if you see it, just go ahead and shoot it. Like there's there's nothing illegal about it, you know. <laughs> yeah, so, that... <laughs> it, I mean, it's uh, definitely interesting, the opportunities that could be there, I guess. And that's something, yeah. too, like you mentioned the reintroduction of Bear into Illinois. I'm uh, elk is on my bucket list too, and I think it's really interesting what Missouri's doing with their elk population. Uh, Kentucky, parts of Kentucky, like eastern Kentucky, have some elk now. I could definitely see somewhere down the road us having elk in southern Illinois in the Shawnee area and all that, uh, at least a limited population. Illinois is kind of screwed up on a lot of things, but uh, I'm hoping yeah. for it too. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's probably you know, an understatement. Typically, it's north. It's north of me that they're screwed up on them things, but it tends <laughs> to affect the rest of the state. It sure does. Uh, yeah. It gets it, worse it really the further does. north you go. <laughs> and and, and it, for some reason, their viewpoint and our viewpoint on elk and everything else seems to be that you know that they just don't care. Mm-hmm. But yep. But I will say, I would love to see an elk reintroduction. I would love to see a black bear reintroduction into the state of Illinois, just like they reintroduced the turkey. Mm-hmm. And I remember as a kid, uh, I think they did the reintroduction was first down in Southern Illinois. Yeah. And then later, like mid-state, mid-state didn't have a single turkey when I was a kid growing up. Right. And I remember actually going to the DNR meetings with my dad mm-hmm. when they were contemplating the reintroduction in the farmland in, in Central and Northern Illinois. Mm-hmm. And we went to those meetings, and sure enough, they, they got enough people that voiced their opinion, and they were for it. They had farmers that were willing to participate in the program and, and you know, lend their timber to, to those turkeys. And sure enough, eight years later or whatever it was, maybe 10 years later, there was a healthy enough population where there was actually turkey season, and I drew my first tag. Right, So yeah. So that was really cool to see. And if I could see that with some other game species, I'm 100% all for it. Yep. Yeah, I think, unfortunately, like what you're talking about, it just seems that uh, the state doesn't care that much about a lot of things like that. Yeah. If, it, if it's, which is odd, because you would think it would be an opportunity for them to generate revenue, but <laughs> if there's no opportun- immediate opportunity for them to generate revenue, it seems like they're not interested in it. <laughs> they also tend to care a lot about uh, animal vehicle collisions yeah, and right, insurance yeah. companies. Yep. And insurance companies, especially ones that are based in Illinois, tend to have a big say in <laughs> mm-hmm. politics in Illinois. Mm-hmm. I'll that's, just leave it at that. <laughs> that's another uh, maybe revenue stream that we won't, have, we won't get into. <laughs> Absolutely. It tends to happen with a lot of culling. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah. That, so I don't want to take too much of your time here tonight, but uh, I do want to give you the chance to let everybody know where they can find you and where they can find the Publicly Challenged podcast on your socials and all that, and then uh, where they can find that. 
So I am on Facebook. I, I uh, don't utilize it that much, mm-hmm. um, but, but I'm on there. And if you look me up, you can see some of my stuff and it's publicly challenged and there's a page for that. And then uh, I am also on Instagram. Most of my stuff is on Instagram mm-hmm. and that's publicly underscore challenged. And then uh, I'm also on TikTok. Don't do a whole lot on there, but I put a few things on there. Some of the stuff I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And that's publicly challenged as well. And then you can always go to publiclychallenged.com and uh, see some of the stuff I've done, some of the blog posts, and then of course uh, buy some products. It's really cool T-shirts. I believe you've got one, Canyon. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, so you know, little fun things that I've come up with along the way and turn those into products and stuff to try and help further this thing along a little bit. And then the stick clips we talked about too; those are on uh, publiclychallenged.com okay. as well. So yeah, cool. Um, and also in case anybody's interested in it based on what we've talked tonight or learning more about it, obviously they can check out your podcast. Are there any other, uh, like foraging based podcasts that you would recommend for people? Cause that's something that you don't buddy, hear about. A yeah. Lot. I've got a buddy named, uh, Michael Baker and he's got wild edible world. Okay. And that's all foraging talk. I believe each episode, they're nice and short. You can listen to them on a short trip. Uh, they're like a half hour each and, uh, they cover one one item or particular topic per, per episode. So it's kind of nice. It's very segmented. Mm-hmm. Um, and typically it's seasonal as they do it, but yeah, that's a pretty good one to listen to. Okay. And that's, that's strictly foraging. Right. Yep. And then I'll, I'll go ahead and link that and all your stuff in the show notes too. So that'll make it easier for everybody to find it. But, uh, really appreciate you coming on Luke. It was fun talking to you. Um, and we'll definitely have to do this again sometime if you're up for it. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for having me on. I I really appreciate that. For sure, man. Appreciate it. Um, I'll holler at you sometime and we'll get you back in here. All right.